Crime Most Queer is an LGBTQ true crime podcast intended for adult audiences and may contain graphic or disturbing content, including detailed descriptions of violence, physical or sexual assault, injuries to victims, and foul language. If you feel this may trigger you at all, please reconsider listening. Welcome to Crime Most Queer. I'm NJ Hawkeby. After an absence much longer than I anticipated, we're back, and I decided to pick things up with a case that many of you have requested. The murder of Bruno Bron, the owner of Bronx Nightclub in Cape Town. So this was supposed to go out on YouTube, but I have the absolute worst luck in the world. Not only did my camera decide to dial me as I was starting, one of the screws on my mic stand decided to strip, leaving my mic hanging. And this comes a week after my mobile phone holder felt necessary to become two separate parts. So yeah, YouTube will have to wait, and I apologize for the sound. Also, ACMQ Patreon is still paused and will stay that way for a while, at least until I've found my feet once more. You can still buy me a coffee though, there is a link for that down in the show notes. Right. So before we get into it, there are three things I want to clear up right at the start. First, there was a disagreement in the press on what the perpetrator's surname was. I went with the more commonly used one. I did try and get hold of the prosecutor for clarity, but didn't have any success. So if I got it wrong, my apologies. Second, the term coloured refers to an ethnic group in South Africa, for those of you who don't know not the slur that it is in other parts of the world. It's essentially mixed race. Trevor Noah is black in America, but coloured when he comes home. And lastly, my Rand dollar conversions were done at February 2012 rates. I am well aware that our exchange rate has gone to shit since then, and the conversions will be horrendously wrong these days. But I also haven't adjusted for inflation. So feel free to work it out for yourself. Just don't come for me. (laughs) But yeah, Enough waffle. Let's dive in. Prologue. I think he's dead. Cape Town summers are generally hot and dry. It's what makes the Western Cape province of South Africa such good wine country. This particular Tuesday, February the 7th, 2012, was certainly living up to Cape Town's reputation. A minibus taxi zipped along Strand Street as it made its way up the hill towards High Level Road. Jacoba Marcus sat in the second row, absentmindedly gazing out of the window, not paying much attention to the city as it whizzed by. Almost there, she thought, glancing at her watch, and she readied herself to finish her journey to work on foot. The time was 8.35. She was running a little late, but nothing to worry about, and she called out to the driver, Skyway Sambleaf, the minibus pulled over to the curb, and Jacobo started making her way up the flight of stairs leading to the street above. It was 8.45 when she arrived at 8 Ocean View Drive, Greenpoint, and Jacobo used her key to unlock the front gate. She didn't usually work on Tuesdays, just Mondays and Fridays, but a special arrangement had been made for this week due to her having an appointment the day before. On the days she worked, Bruno, her employer, would leave the front door closed but unlocked so that she could let herself in, which she did now. But she immediately sensed that something was wrong. 
Her first clue was that the dogs were on the veranda. Usually when she got in, Bruno was still asleep and the dogs would be curled up on the bed next to him. He must already be awake. But the sliding door leading to the swimming pool was closed and the curtains were drawn. Usually, these were both left open so that the dogs could move free between the house and the garden. Bruno was a bit of a neat freak, so dog shit inside wasn't an option. Then she opened the curtains and her blood ran cold. All the drawers in the lounge were open, and as she moved from room to room, she was shocked at the state of disarray. As mentioned, Bruno was a bit of a neat freak. She expected the house to be as orderly as she had left it on Friday afternoon. She made her way to the master bedroom and passed the study, also in disarray, and she noticed that Bruno's laptop wasn't on his desk. Arriving at the master bedroom, she knocked softly on the door and gently called out his name, just in case he was still asleep. She suspected Bruno had been robbed and slept through it, but how would he not know if the dogs had been outside? There was no response to her knocks and calls, and she timidly opened the bedroom door, fearing the worst. Thankfully, the room was empty, but also in a total state. Never in all her years of working for Bruno and his partner Jono had she ever seen the house looking like this. It had to be a robbery, but where was Bruno? The feeling of dread intensified, and Yokoba decided she needed to call someone. First she tried the neighbours, but there was no reply. Then she flagged down a passing armed response vehicle, out on patrol, and asked the patrol officer to accompany her into the house. The two walked down the stairs leading from the road, and Yokoba entered the house, while the patrol officer went towards the flatlet. Moments later, the officer rushed back into the house and said, Madam, there's a man lying in the bedroom. I think he's dead. Chapter 1. Living Their Best Gay Lives Bruno was born on October the 10th, 1957, to Willy and Anita Bronn in the city of Bloemfontein, one of South Africa's three capitals. The judicial capital, to be precise, home to the Supreme Court of Appeals, the second highest court in the country. It is also home to the Universities of the Free State, or the Orange Free State as it was known back then. Bruno had a younger brother, Renier, who still lives in Bloemfontein and heads up a successful architectural business. There isn't much information available on Bruno's early life, such as where he went to school, what he studied at university, or when he decided to leave Bloemfontein. But leave Bloemfontein, he did. He eventually settled in Cape Town, the most cosmopolitan of South African cities, and the most gay-friendly, for the most part. It was here that he met Jono Isaacs, who would become the love of Bruno's life. They built a life together, bought property together, travelled the world together, adopted dogs, and partied on the Pink Strip, a stretch of Somerset Road in Greenpoint, where most queer bars, clubs, and restaurants were located. Jono was the more outgoing of the two, and when, in 1999, they were presented with the opportunity to buy Bronx, at the time South Africa's leading gay club, Jono was very keen. Bruno wanted Jono to be happy, and so he agreed to the purchase. As it turned out, Philip King, the previous owner, would become a lifelong friend to the couple. They weathered a few storms, like the car bombing in 2000 that injured the doorman, and the drive-by shooting in 2006, where five shots were fired at the entrance in the early hours of the morning, injuring a bouncer. 
But even so, Jono and Bruno were living their best gay lives, long before it became a hashtag on Instagram. They were a dynamic duo, with Jono working front of house and Bruno behind the scenes. But it was not to last. In 2004, Jono was diagnosed with cancer. It was a shocking blow, but they promised to fight it together. And boy did they. But ultimately, in 2006, the cancer won. When Jono died, Bruno was devastated and overwhelmed. Suddenly he had to run the whole Bronx show on his own, and it took its toll. According to friends, Bruno never recovered from the loss, and things began to noticeably slip through the cracks. Maintenance wasn't being done in a timely manner, and the club was starting to look shabby. Also, Bruno wasn't the easiest person to work for. Even the slightest issue could send him into a rage. But despite all of this, the Bronx staff stuck by him. The same could not be said for his friends. Bruno shared with the few who remained in his circle that he felt abandoned by the people he had called friends. When Jono died, they moved on, and a grieving Bruno wasn't factored into their future plans. Bruno did the best he could, and along with his management team and staff, Bronx survived and held on to his reputation as the jewel in the Cape Town Queer Club crown. Despite getting itself on the news a few more times with some rather unfortunate publicity. In 2008, when a black Belgian tourist was refused entry, he accused the club of racism. Bruno denied this, insisting instead that the man was a problem client, and it was for this reason, not his race, that he was sent on his way. Occasionally there were police raids at the venue, and management often accused police of using excessive force and homophobic slurs against the patrons. And then there were rumours of pickpockets infiltrating the club, and even claims that criminals and would-be rapists were spiking patrons' drinks. It wasn't all negative press, though. In 2008, Bruno opened Navigation, a less commercial dance club above Bronx, which became hugely popular. However, in early 2011, Bruno conceded that he needed more help, and he hired 36-year-old John Kutzer as a bouncer and handyman. John was a bit of a rough sort, and it was never established where he stood on the LGBTQ spectrum, if he even featured at all. What is known is that Bruno wanted himself a piece of that. It was an open secret among friends and staff that Bruno and John were fucking. It was also known that their sexual proclivities tended towards the dark side. Fetish play was definitely their thing. But there appeared to be some pretty strict rules in place. Hookups only happened in the flat. John and Bruno did not share a bed. And John did not become a part of Bruno's social circle. This clearly suited John, provided Bruno kept him comfortable. Chapter 2 You didn't think you'd get rid of me that easily, did you? I don't know if you will ever truly get inside the mind of John Kutzer, but at the same time, I'm not sure I even want to. By all accounts, although to be fair, all of these accounts are from Bruno's circle of friends, John was arrogant, uncouth, common, aggressive, and manipulative. He was also not unfamiliar with being on the wrong side of the law, 
having previous convictions for drug possession and assault. He started working at Bronx in 2011, and for a time, he even lived in the flatlet on Bruno's property. It was during this period that the two became sexual. I'm not sure how it came about. Maybe John saw Bruno as an easy mark. Even after all those years, Bruno still pined over the loss of John. And perhaps John decided to take advantage of Bruno's loneliness for John's own benefit, whether financially or otherwise. Maybe Bruno initiated it, and John went along with it because he saw an opportunity to turn it to his advantage. Then again, maybe it just happened. Maybe one drug-fueled night, shit got funky, and they discovered that they shared a taste for the less than vanilla. Who knows? Doesn't really matter, to be honest. The how is irrelevant. The point is, it happened. Although John would later vehemently deny that there was anything sexual between them. John didn't have much of a fan base at Bronx or among Bruno's friends. One commenter posted on the Navigation Facebook group after the murder called him scaly, a slang term meaning a shady, stealthy, backstabbing person, according to Urban Dictionary, and added that she was, quote, not surprised he was arrested, end quote. Indeed, in the days and weeks leading up to that evening in February, Bruno confided to his friends that John scared him. In mid-January 2012, Bronx closed its door for the last time. The club, ha- the club had been struggling financially for a while, and with the lease up for renewal, Bruno decided to shut it down rather than lock himself into another lease that might not ultimately suit his plans. With John now unemployed and no longer staying in the flatlet at Bruno's, he began harassing Bruno for money, and Bruno told him to leave him alone. John did not take kindly to this, and he began stalking and intimidating Bruno. He was also not above stealing from him. According to Ari Nitsen, at the time one of Navigation's resident DJs, John had previously pilfered cash and traveler's checks from Bruno's home. One incident involved Bruno home alone one evening when the buzzer at the front gate sounded. Bruno walked out to see who it was, only to find no one there. As he turned to walk back down the stairs and back into the house, John was sitting there on the steps, having jumped over the fence. John smiled sardonically, and in a calm yet menacing tone said, You didn't think you'd get rid of me that easily, did you? On Saturday, February the 4th, Bruno had friends around when John arrived. Bruno was visibly shaken, and according to one friend, Bash Rihawi, Bruno's friends all insisted that John leave, which he eventually did. But the following day, John returned, three times each time jumping over the fence to gain access to the property. Eventually, Bruno drove to Bash's place so that he wasn't there if John returned. Bruno admitted that he was living in fear, and Bash told him to get away from John, because he too feared for Bruno's safety. Bash followed Bruno home that evening and stayed with him late into the night. The following day, the harassment of Bruno continued. John returned, and the two men got into another row, with John kicking the garage door so hard that Bruno was unable to close it. At 8.30 in the evening on February 6th, Bruno made one final phone call to Bush, asking if he knew of anybody who could repair a garage door after hours. Bush said he didn't, but they would get it sorted out in the morning. That phone call would be the last time Bush would ever hear his friend's voice.
again. Chapter 3. I'll direct you. 35-year-old Kurt Erispi worked for his mother's security company as an inspector, which required him to patrol designated areas and drop in at the various sites in his allocated area to ensure that the guards were at their posts and not sleeping on the job. On Monday, February the 6th, Kurt wasn't scheduled to work, but his mother phoned him that afternoon and asked him to fill in for another inspector who hadn't arrived for duty. But instead of heading to Seapoint in Clifton, where he was supposed to be working, he made his way to his friend's place in the Cape Town suburb of Brooklyn. Ahmad Topher, also aged 35, lived in Elbow Gardens, a residential complex originally built to house Air Force officers from nearby Aesterplatte Air Force Base after the fall of apartheid. It was never used as such. It was ultimately repurposed as low-cost housing and is now a unique example of diverse multiracial coexistence with blacks, whites and coloreds living side by side. But don't be fooled by that description. This is gangland, where drugs and prostitution are the dominant trades. Kids as young as 10 are already getting high to pass the time. Unemployment is rife, and by the time the kids are halfway through their teens, many of them have already been initiated into one of the gangs and committed their first petty crimes. By their mid-twenties, a fair number of them has spent at least some time inside Polesmore, arguably South Africa's toughest prison, and by 30, their lives are ruined. This is not the kind of place one makes a success of one's life. But with the unemployment rate what it is, people do what they must to survive. It's not that I condone crime. If I did, ACNQ would be a very different kind of true crime podcast. But facts are facts. I'm just stating them. If you don't like the facts, change the people in charge. But back to our story. Instead of going to work, Kurt went to his friend Ahmad. While they were chatting, Ahmad received a call from another friend of his in the northern suburbs asking for help. He needed a lift to the seaboard. Ahmad told the caller to hold and shot Kurt a questioning look. With a curt nod from Kurt, the plans were set. The two men, Kurt and Ahmad, made their way to Goodwood in the patrol car, where a stocky white man climbed into the back seat. Introductions were made. Kurt John, John Kurt. And the now three men drove off in the direction of Greenpoint. On the way, John explained that he had a falling out with his, um, friend, and that he needed to go and fetch his stuff. Kurt asked what John did for a living, and he replied that he was a bouncer at Bronx, the Morphy Bar in Greenpoint. For you non-South Africans, Morphy is a homophobic slur akin to fag. Although, like fag, it is generally being reclaimed by the queer community. Anyway, from the N1 highway, they merged onto Nelson Mandela Boulevard, and then onto Batenkracht, and then they turned right onto Strand. Kurt asked which street, and John replied, Ocean View Drive, but drop me by the stairs in Skyway. I'll direct you. Moments later, Kurt brought the patrol car to a stop, his headlights lighting up a flight of concrete steps, lined on either side by unkempt hedges. As he was climbing out, John put his hand on Ahmad's shoulder. I'll call when I'm done. Yeah, okay. And John disappeared up the stairs. The clock on the dashboard glowed 22.57 as Kurt put the car in gear and then headed back to Brooklyn. Chapter 4 
Chapter 4. Shut the fuck up. The lights were still on at 8 Ocean View Drive. This wasn't surprising. You don't own a nightclub if you are the early-to-bed, early-to-rise type. But John didn't bother ringing the buzzer at the front gate. After what happened with the garage door earlier, it was unlikely Bruno would let him in willingly anyway. So as had now become habit, he jumped the fence. The dogs heard him approaching the house first, and started barking. Bruno got up to investigate, and a look of shock, tinged with fear, contorted his face. He dashed towards the front door to close and lock it, but John was quicker, and was inside before Bruno had even made it halfway across the room. John came to a halt just inside the doorway, and Bruno froze, not knowing what to do, not knowing what to expect. Then John casually sauntered towards him, a mocking smirk on his lips. Bruno let out an annoyed sigh, straightened his back, and demanded to know what John wanted. John said nothing. He just stopped his approach and stared back, still smiling that infuriating smile. Bruno again demanded to know why John was there, a hint of panic creeping into his tone, much to Bruno's annoyance. Eventually, John spoke, saying that he needed to fetch his stuff from the flatlet. Bruno didn't think there was anything of his in there, but John insisted that he just wanted to make sure. Bruno didn't trust him at all and said that John could check, but he wasn't going unsupervised. John shrugged. (laughs) Suit yourself. Bruno put the dogs out onto the veranda so that he could focus all of his attention on John, and they made their way to the flatlet. We'll never know how it started. Only two people know precisely what happened in the flatlet that night. One of them is dead, and the other has merely a passing familiarity with the truth. Did Bruno finally speak his mind and tell John exactly how he felt, which resulted in John losing his temper? Did the two get into an argument that escalated into a physical altercation? Did John simply attack Bruno unexpectedly as soon as the opportunity to catch him off guard presented itself? Maybe. Any one of these scenarios is plausible. We will never know how it started, but we know how it ended. A scuffle ensued. John, being almost 20 years Bruno's junior, and with bulk on his side, soon had the upper hand. But Bruno fought back. He scratched and he kicked and he punched. John removed his belt and bound Bruno's wrists. At least that stopped Bruno from fighting back. That was the moment that Bruno realized he was losing. And he called out for help. A neighbor heard the call and called back over the fence asking if everything was okay. John grabbed a towel lying nearby and held it down on Bruno's face with one hand while pressing down on his throat with the other. Shut the fuck up. As calmly as he could, John called back, All's well. It was just the television. He then held his breath, waiting to see if the neighbour bought the lie. To his relief, she seemed to take his response as fact and went about her evening. John heaved a sigh and closed his eyes for a moment, slowed his breathing, and allowed the adrenaline rush to pass. Then he turned his attention back to Bruno. The older man had done as he had been told. He'd shut the fuck up. This was good. John removed the towel from his face and saw Bruno's eyes were open and glazed over. John slapped him to bring him round. No reaction. Then he checked his breathing. There was none. No heartbeat at all. Bruno Bron was dead. 
John swore under his breath, fuck, and got to his feet. He looked down at the body on the floor and swore again, fuck, fuck, fuck. He became aware that his neck was wet. Thinking the tussle had worked up a sweat, he wiped his neck with a towel, still in his hand. It wasn't sweat, it was blood. In disgust, he threw the towel at Bruno's face, took out his phone, and called the last number he had rung. He didn't want to be in the same room as the body, so he stepped outside into the patio and lit a cigarette. After a few rings, the call was answered, and he uttered just three words. Yeah, we're done. Ahmad replied that they were on their way, and John hung up. He took a couple more drags of his cigarette and tossed it into the built-in braai, a brick barbecue for outside grilling for you international folk. Then he went back inside and closed the door to the flatlet. Unbeknownst to him, the same neighbour who had responded to the call for help watched from the safety of a home as John spoke on the phone, finished his cigarette, and went back in. Fortunately for her, she got a very clear view of the man at number 8 Oceanview Drive. Unfortunately for him, she would share his description with the police a few hours later. Back inside the flatlet, John looked down at the body on the floor and swore again. Try as he might, he couldn't shake the feeling that Bruno was looking at him, accusingly. Finally, he couldn't take it anymore. He picked up a green rug lying nearby and covered Bruno's head and upper body. We've seen this before in other cases we've covered. It's called symbolic reversal, or in layman's terms, undoing the crime. It usually indicates to investigators that the perpetrator knew his victim. It also suggests that John wasn't as unaffected by his crime as he was trying to convince himself he was. There is more to the story, obviously, but let's take a quick ad break while you refill your coffee mug or wine glass, and we'll be back right after this. The human experiment has ended. The earth has been obliterated. A plague of cholera burns through the outer colonies, and the last of the great houses drifts at the edge of the Kuiper Belt, carrying a macabre secret. The only thing standing between Twilight House and the death of all living things is Fort Providence Transit Station on the dark side of Pluto's largest moon. The Ghosts of Pluto. Octoberpod presents an audio drama written by M.J. McAdams, produced, edited, and directed by Edward October. Coming this February. Okay, so full disclosure, this is shameless self-promotion. Ghosts of Pluto is my audio drama debut. So please do give it a listen when it drops later this month. You can find Octoberpod on YouTube by searching for Octoberpod Home Video, or there is a link down below. And now Let's get back into it. Chapter 5. One smart decision in a sea of stupid ones. Fariz Ali was bored and was not in the mood to sit at home alone. 
It was just after 11pm when the 29-year-old made a call to his friend Ahmad Tofa and asked what he was up to. Ahmad said that he and a friend were driving back to Brooklyn from Greenpoint. Fariz asked if he could join them. Ahmad told him that they would pick him up in a few minutes. When the patrol car pulled up to the curb alongside Fariz, Ahmad was on a call. As Fariz got in, he heard Ahmad say, We'll be there now now. And then he hung up the phone. Inquiring where there was, he was told, Greenpoint, we must go fetch my friend. This time, however, they drove onto Ocean View Drive and stopped across the road from number 8. John was waiting at the gate and waved them over. He said he needed help with getting his stuff. Kurt didn't want to leave the patrol car unattended, so he said he would wait for them. As it turned out, this was his one smart decision for the night. One smart decision in a sea of stupid ones. Ahmad and Fariz followed John into the house and Fariz asked where Bruno was. John responded with a single word, sleeping. The two coloured men accepted this and didn't inquire further. The house was in a total state. Drawers and cupboards were open, their contents strewn about. As John found particular items, he shoved them into one of two bags. Release, I assume. It was never actually revealed who raided the place. Was it John alone, while he waited for the others to arrive? Or did Ahmad and Fariz help? And if they did help, did they use their own initiative and what to take, or did they just pack what they were told to? What was confirmed, however, is that Fariz did wander about the house, looking in various rooms. But nothing prepared him for what he would discover when he looked into the flatlet. He rushed back to the main house and tried to remain calm as he said to Ahmad that they needed to go now. His next words lit a fire under all of their asses. There's a body. John immediately chimed in that yes, it was indeed time to go. He grabbed the two bags and the keys to Bruno's white BMW 320 and ran out to the street. Fariz and Ahmad followed closely on his heels. John threw the bags into the backseat of the beamer and got behind the wheel. Fariz and Ahmad, in turn, ran to the patrol car. Before their doors had even closed, Ahmad yelled to Kurt, Drive! Kurt jerked his head up to see the BMW speed away down Ocean View Drive. Next door, the neighbour heard Bruno's car race away and she looked at the wall clock. A mere 30 minutes had passed since she had first heard the call for help. She hoped that Bruno's driving away was a sign that the situation had resolved itself, and she decided to turn in for the night. As she was soon learn, the situation had been resolved the worst possible way. Not many words were exchanged between the three men on the drive back to Brooklyn. Fariz revealed that there had been a body, but didn't know who. Ahmad said nothing the whole way. Kurt was lost in his thoughts, trying to wrap his head around what the fuck he had just been dragged into. Back at Elbow Gardens, the three men went straight to Ahmad's room. Shortly afterwards, John arrived, carrying the two bags with him. He put them down and immediately asked Ahmad if he had any crystal meth, using the South African street name, Tuk. Ahmad said he did not, but they could get, if John had money. John said he didn't, but he had a phone that he could exchange for the drugs, and three of the four men drove to Maitland, the next suburb over, in Bruno's BMW, to visit Ahmad's supplier to get meth and mandrax. 
Kurt decided to stay behind at Ahmad's flat and wait for them to return. When they got back, the four men smoked Tuck in silence for a while, until Fariz finally plucked up the courage to ask who the dead guy was. John's answer was terse and left no doubt that the conversation was over. Don't worry. Chapter 6 So much for a slow Tuesday. When Sergeant Marvin Besaidenote came on duty at Seapoint Police Station that Tuesday morning in February, he wasn't expecting anything spectacular to cross his desk. But all that changed at 9.30 when his phone rang. Body. Upper Greenpoint. White male. Mid-50s. Looks to be a robbery gone wrong. <laughs> so much for a slow Tuesday. Ocean View Drive was already a hive of activity by the time Marvin arrived. Curious neighbours had begun to gather, and a small group of men, some of them overcome with grief, stood speaking to a police officer. He made a mental note to come out and find out their connection to the deceased. Inside, a middle-aged coloured lady was sitting in the lounge, also very emotional. He would want to talk to her too, but first he needed to see the crime scene. The constable led him through the house and out to the flatlet. His immediate impression was that they certainly weren't dealing with a criminal mastermind. Either that, or the perpetrator had been interrupted. Which then raised the question, by whom? Removing the rug from the victim, police found a white, blood-stained towel. The belt was also a wealth of forensic evidence. And there appeared to be trace evidence under the victim's fingernails. It was time to chat to the woman he had seen when he entered the house. It turned out that she, Jacoba Marcus, was employed as a domestic worker by the deceased, now identified as Bruno Braun, aged 55, owner of Bronx on Greenpoint's Pink Strip. She wasn't meant to work that day, but had she not come in, the body would have only been discovered on Friday. Marvin tried not to think about the dogs and how they would have gone unfed for three days. Jacoba recalled how she'd flagged down a security patrol car, and the security officer had been the one to find the body. Next, Marvel went to have a chat to the men outside. They had much to say, and even pointed Marvin in the direction of a person of interest, someone who had been harassing Bruno for the past few weeks, Willem Frederick John Kutzer, employee and former sexual partner of the victim. According to Bruno's friends, John had been known to steal from Bruno, and even as recently as the day before, he'd been making a nuisance of himself, damaging the garage door. One friend even revealed that Bruno had been living in fear of this man for weeks. Next, he spoke to one of Bruno's neighbours, who said that she'd heard a call for help just after 11pm, but when she called back and asked if everything was okay, a voice replied that all was well. She also mentioned seeing a man she knew to be Bruno's friend, and that she had heard Bruno's car drive off shortly afterwards, apparently driven by this individual. She had thought it was Bruno. When asked to describe the man, her description matched the one Bruno's other friends had given of John Kutzer. Marvin realised that it was imperative that he speak to Mr. Kutzer urgently, but getting hold of him proved difficult. He also learned that three other men had been seen with John in the early hours of Tuesday morning. One of these men was identified 
as Fariz Ali. Fariz was arrested in Salt River the very next day and interrogated. He gave a statement to police that identified Ahmed Tofa as being in the car with him and John, and that they had driven to an address in Maitland to buy drugs. According to Fariz, John had exchanged a phone for the drugs, and he believed the phone belonged to Bruno. Lastly, Fariz identified Kurt Rispy as the fourth man. Malvin immediately sent an officer to the address in Maitland to seize the phone and launched a search for the other two men. On Thursday, Bruno's brother Rainier arrived from Brunfontein, accompanied by his wife Liesel. They, along with Bronx manager Krista Asu, went to Salt River Mortuary, where Rainier identified his brother's body. Afterwards, speaking to the gathered news reporters, he tearfully recalled his brother's kind nature and soft heart. He spoke of Bruno's dedication to his work and his willingness to help those in need. His brother, he said, was an excellent example to all who knew him, and especially to Rainier himself. Christopher spoke of Bruno's plans for the future. They had spoken only days before he died, and Bruno told him he had found a new venue for Bronx. The club may have closed three weeks earlier, but Bruno wasn't done with Bronx yet. Christopher said Bruno's death was a great loss to many people. By Friday the 10th, investigators had still not located John Kutzer, so they turned to the press. So as not to spook him, they said only that he was wanted for questioning, but that he wasn't considered a suspect at that time. The press coverage paid off, and they received a tip that John had been seen in Boerkarp, less than two kilometres from the crime scene. Police closed in, and on Saturday the 11th, John Kutzer was apprehended by police. Later that evening, Ahmad Tofa was arrested at his flat in Brooklyn, and the following day, Kurt Rispy was arrested at his home in Goodwood. When arresting Kurt, they also recovered Bruno's car. Now with all four in custody, interrogations began in earnest, and right off the bat, it got off to a great start. In Fariza's statement, he told police that he had come across the body and that he decided to tell Ahmad that they needed to leave, but John claimed that Fariz was to blame. Their statements did line up on one thing, though. They both emphatically denied the act of murder, speaking for themselves alone, of course. On February the 13th, all four men appeared in the Cape Town Magistrates' Court, where their case was postponed to February the 20th, when their bail hearing would commence. We'll get to their day in court shortly, but I want to end this chapter by talking about Bruno's memorial. Over the years, thousands of people passed through Bronx's doors. When I lived in Cape Town and partied at Bronx, first in 2000, then again in 2004, and finally in 2009, just before I got married, even the supposedly quiet mid-month weekends saw hundreds of clubbers in Bronx and navigation. To say that the place was pumping almost every night is no exaggeration. It was the place to go for karaoke in the week, and it was always our second stop every weekend. In 2000 for me, it was the venue that Blah Blah became after the 99 bombing. I think it was called Identity, but I'm old, my memory is not what it once was. But then after that, Bronx and then Detour. In 2004 was Cafe Manhattan's Bronx, then Sliver. In 2009, Loft Lounge, Bronx, and finally Navigation. Bronx was a home away from home for so many of us. Unfortunately, though, 
Cape Town's queer community can be a little superficial. If you're not in, you're out. I learned this with my husband. He was in. I was not. But this gave me a unique perspective. I got to go to all the social gatherings, but I got to witness them as an outsider. One thing that stood out to me is that they were big on the glamour and being seen, but they didn't like when reality infiltrated their glamorous, Instagram-ready lifestyles. This was plainly obvious at Bruno's memorial. Despite the hundreds, if not thousands of Bronx and Navigation regulars who partied up a storm every weekend, when a sundowner picnic was arranged for February the 25th at Greenpoint Park, one week before Cape Town Pride, only a fraction bothered to pitch up to bid farewell to this Cape Town icon. Bruno's parents, Vili and Anita, alongside his brother Renier and sister-in-law Liesel, Philip King, who had previously owned Bronx, DJs Ari Nitsen, David Himan, and Craig Quinn, Bronx managers Bash Hirawi and Christopher Nasso, and the 25-ish employees of both venues were among the 100 or so people who attended. Perhaps I expect too much of our community, but is it really too much to ask of people to go to a fucking funeral? Apparently so. That said, it was a moving tribute, with speaker after speaker paying their last respects by recounting stories of how Bruno had touched their lives and left his mark on the Cape Town queer community. Renier thanked the assembled crowd for coming to mourn his brother's passing, but also for coming to celebrate his life. He paid tribute to Jono, the love of Bruno's life, and said he believed that they were once again together, smiling down on the gathering. Chapter 7 He always trusted me a lot. The swift arrests of the four suspects on charges of murder and robbery with aggravating circumstances were hailed by Cape Town's queer community as a victory for the police, and there appeared to be hope that this matter would come to a speedy and favourable conclusion. But the prosecution of Bruno Braun's alleged killers would prove to be a roller coaster ride of appearances and postponements. Within days of the arrests, a petition began circulating online, calling for the men to remain behind bars until their trial. It contended that were they to be released, the alleged perpetrators could go after potential witnesses in the city's queer community, including Bruno's friends, with whom John had had previous run-ins. However, bail hearings went ahead in late February, and the first of the four Kurt Arisby went before the court to argue for his release. The state didn't oppose bail, saying that, as he had a confirmed address and no previous convictions, he was not considered a flight risk. Kurt was released on 10,000 Rand bail, about $1,300 at the time, on condition that he not leave the province or change his address without informing the investigating officer, and that he had no contact with any of the witnesses. It was reported at the time that John Kutzer had abandoned his bail application due to his prior convictions and that Ahmad Tofa had yet to apply. A month later, Fariz Ali's bail application was heard. Unlike with Kurt, the state did oppose Fariz's release, saying that they disputed his claims that he was elsewhere at the time of the murder and that he had a mother and pregnant fiancé to support. However, on March the 27th, Magistrate 
Jasri Stain granted bail of 5,000 Rand, around $650, saying that Fariz had denied taking part and there was no evidence placing him at the scene of the crime when it was committed. Furthermore, Magistrate Stain dismissed the petition calling on the court to deny bail, saying that the accused must be considered innocent until proven guilty. Also in March, despite him previously abandoning his bail application, John Kutzer was granted bail of 20,000 rand, around $2,600, leaving only Ahmad Tofer behind bars. Then in July 2012, the state informed the court that they were in possession of DNA reports that placed John and Ahmad at the scene, but they did not specify how they were linked to the crime. Furthermore, they informed the court that they were only waiting for the fingerprint and cell phone record analysis reports, and then they would be ready to proceed. But back to Ahmad. His bail application was postponed numerous times for a myriad of reasons, and the state opposed his release. According to a sworn statement submitted to the court, John Kutzer claimed that Ahmad had called him from prison and threatened to have him killed if John told the truth during trial. He also claimed that Ahmad had told him that he had been in contact with other witnesses who would corroborate Ahmad's version of events. Ahmad was a known drug dealer, and according to unverified rumours posted on the My Broadband News Forum, he was also affiliated to the Notorious 26 Gang. Investigators argued that John's claims held water as Ahmad was well-connected enough to have obtained a mobile phone in prison and made that call. However, long story short, he was eventually granted bail of 15,000 Rand, or around $1,800, in August. But in October, he was rearrested for violating his bail conditions. He was taken into custody in Maitland at the home of one of the witnesses in the case and was found in possession of an unlicensed firearm. Okay, so not much happened over the next 10 months save for Kurt Arisby turning state's witness and agreeing to testify against his co-accused. An agreement was reached that charges would be withdrawn provided that his testimony in the trial was deemed satisfactory to the court. Finally, at long last, on February the 11th, 2014, more than two years after Bruno's body was discovered in his Greenpoint home, the trial for his murder got underway in the Western Cape High Court with Judge President John Chlope and Assessor Jakub van Rienen, a retired Chief Magistrate, presiding. The first witness called to testify was Bruno Braun's domestic worker, Jacoba Marcus. Now, I'm not going to rehash the prosecution's entire case because we are already almost an hour into this and most of the story thus far was taken from court reporting. However, things got really interesting when John Kutzer took to the witness box in his own defence. Fucking strap in. Fighting back tears, John claimed that he and Bruno had a good, albeit platonic, friendship and that Bruno trusted him implicitly. Speaking of the night in question, John stated that Kurt had been driving him, Ahmad and Fariz around. In the course of the evening, they had dropped him over Bruno's home because he and Bruno needed to talk. According to John, Bruno wanted to discuss a matter relating to traveller's checks. John alleged he knocked on Bruno's door and Bruno answered and invited him inside. While they were talking, John noticed on the home surveillance system Kurt's car pulled up in front of the house, but he didn't see anybody exit the vehicle. 
John and Bruno then moved the conversation to the flatlet, which is when Fariz appeared and thrust the gun into John's hand and told him to keep Bruno in the flat and to keep him quiet. But Bruno saw the firearm and freaked out. John said that he told Bruno not to worry and to trust him, assuring him that he had no intention of harming him. According to John, he tried to remove the bullets from the gun to prove to Bruno that he was not a threat, but Bruno tried to push past him. John grabbed Bruno to stop him from leaving the flat because he said he knew they would be harmed if they went back into the main house. In his attempt to hold Bruno back, the bullets fell from John's hand onto the floor and Bruno turned on John. They wrestled and Bruno fell against the chair. John took the opportunity to throw Bruno to the floor and placed an arm around his neck in an attempt to calm him. He then told Bruno to call for help and alert a neighbour in the hopes that they would call the police. But Fariz ran back into the flatlet and instructed John to remove his belt and leave him with Bruno. When John went into the house, he saw Ahmad filling bags with various items from Bruno's home. He said that he tried to flee in Bruno's car, but Ahmed told him to take the bags with him. Then John climbed into Bruno's BMW with the stolen items and drove away, trying as best he could to remain calm. Jesus fucking Christ. When asked by his lawyer, Patrick Scott, whether stealing Bruno's car was part of the plan, John claimed that it was not, and there wasn't even a plan to attack Bruno that night. When asked if the plan was to rob Bruno, again John denied this, saying that he had no need to steal from Bruno, recalling one occasion where he approached Bruno for help with money, but he had repaid that loan. According to John, he had no need or reason to rob Bruno. When asked about his injuries, John claimed that these occurred during the struggle. He recalled hearing the sound of glass breaking, but didn't know what it was. When asked about the drugs found in the room where Bruno had died, John claimed that they belonged to Bruno. He said that he knew Bruno smoked weed and used methcathinone, referred to in South Africa as CAT, but is known as methcat overseas. He'd also heard from others that Bruno occasionally used crystal meth. As far as John knew, he claimed, Bruno was alive when he left the house and he drove straight to Ahmad's flat. When he arrived there, he tried calling and texting Bruno without success. When asked why he did this, he said tearfully that he wanted to reassure Bruno that everything would be okay and he mustn't worry that he would be back soon with Bruno's car. John ended his testimony by saying, quote, He always trusted me a lot. End quote. Do I really need to go through his entire story and pick apart all the holes? Because that wasn't so much a story as a fucking fishing net that had so many holes in it. Actually, you know what? I'll leave that up to you. In cross-examination, lawyers for Fariz and Mahmoud ripped John's story to shred, rightfully so. Henry Finnegark, representing Ahmad, went for the proverbial throat, positing that, as far as Ahmad was aware, they were only going there to drop John off, and that John invited them in for the sole purpose of getting them to leave their fingerprints, thereby placing Ahmad and Fariz at the scene. He then went on to remind John and the court that all of the witnesses testified that John had had a sexual relationship with Bruno, that they had all testified about arguments between the two of them, and that they had all testified that John had been known to intimidate Bruno. John's only response to all of that was that all of the witnesses had lied. Because, yeah, 
the whole world has it in for him. On December the 5th, 2014, friends and family of Bruno Ron held their collective breath as Judge Schlope delivered his verdict. Speaking to John Kutzer, accused number one, Judge Schlope said, quote, You are guilty on both counts. Guilty of murder, and secondly, you are found guilty of robbery with aggravating circumstances. Despite John claiming that Fariz had orchestrated the murder, mobile phone records had proved that Fariz was not even in Greenpoint at the time of the murder, and the court rejected John's version of the events. Fariz Ali was duly acquitted on all charges and walked away a free man. Similarly, Ahmad Tofa was also acquitted of murder and robbery. However, he was convicted on account of theft because he had benefited financially from the sale of Bruno's mobile phone that John had given to him. As for Kurt Rispy, he upheld his side of the agreement and no charges were brought against him. The following Monday, December the 8th, 2014, John and Ahmad learned their fates. Ahmad was fined 2,000 rand, around $175, for theft. But John was sentenced to life imprisonment for the murder and 15 years for the robbery, with prescribed sentences for each charge. The sentences would serve concurrently. Epilogue The Obligatory Conspiracy Theory The building that once housed Bronx is no more. It was torn down in April 2012. Today, the building that replaced it houses a Vespa dealership. The Bronx name, however, lives on according to social media. It is now located in Brooklyn, just one kilometer away from the Elbow Gardens complex. It is unclear if it is connected in any way with the original brand. Navigation lived on for a time. Ari and David took over the first floor of Crew Bar in the building next door, but Crew is now also long gone. As for the rest of the pink strip, that's all gone now. The buildings on both sides of Somerset Road have been torn down and replaced with retail complexes. Cafe Manhattan's is still in Devartikant, and Beefcakes is further down Somerset Road, but most queer venues, those that survived COVID lockdown anyway, have moved into the CBD or nearer Upper Long Street. I haven't been to Cape Town in years, and I doubt I would even recognize the club scene there anymore, but I have some excellent memories to think back on. As for Bruno's home, according to aerial photographs on Google Maps, it appears that 8 Ocean View Drive is now just a vacant piece of land. I'm not certain whether that image just happens to have been taken in the middle of a redevelopment of the property, but it does look to be rather overgrown, as if it has been vacant for a while. As for Bruno's dogs, they were adopted by members of the Bronx staff, and despite the traumatic end their human met, they got a new family to call their own. But what of John? Why did he do what he did? I stand by my hypothesis, as put forward in this episode, that Bruno's death came sooner than intended. I have no doubt that Bruno's death was inevitable, but John needed information, and he was determined to get it, come hell or high water, so he needed him alive for a while longer. You see, there was a rumour that a large amount of cash was hidden away on the premises. One claim was that, at one point, it was as much as 900,000 rand, around $120,000, hidden away from the taxman. 
but by the time of Bruno's death, it had dwindled to somewhere in the region of 250,000 Rand, or around $33,000. Not quite almost a million, but still not an insignificant amount of untraceable cash. Is it not possible that John intended to torture Bruno into revealing the hiding place of this treasure trove? But being disrupted by the neighbor's calls as to Bruno's well-being resulted in John accidentally cutting off Bruno's airways, thereby bringing about his death. Yes, it is possible, sure. Perhaps that's why the place has been turned upside down. But we'll never know for certain. And I'm sure John isn't about to admit to that. If nothing else, he certainly proved that he's incapable of telling the truth. No money was ever found, as far as I can establish. <laughs> but then again, it is also possible that if anybody did happen upon that kind of loot, money that no one else knew about, they would know to keep their fucking mouth shut. I guess this will be one final mystery that is never solved. Our very own Kruger Millions mystery, Gay Edition. Thank you for coming along on our journey into the murder of Bruno Braun. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review. Five stars would be awesome, unless of course it sucked, in which case, follow your gut. But don't forget to subscribe, that way you can get notified when we release new episodes. You can find ACMQ on Facebook and Twitter at ACMQ Podcast, or on Instagram at ACMQ Pod. If you want to support the show, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash ACMQ Podcast. You'll find links to all of this down in the show notes. But that's all for today. Join me next time for another case that definitely qualifies as a crime most queer. This has been another episode of A Crime Most Queer, an LGBTQ true crime podcast based in Johannesburg, South Africa, presented by VA Amazing Productions. Today's episode was written by NJ Hawkeby, with editorial oversight by Richard Thompson. Audio production was done by NJ Hawkeby, and the episode was executive produced by Anna Seitz and Janine McLean. While this story is based on actual events, some situations, conversations, and characterizations may have been fictionalized or invented for purposes of dramatization, based on court documents and press reports from the time. With respect to such fictionalizations, any similarity to the actual character or history of any person, living or dead, is purely for dramatic purposes. Some names may have been changed to protect the identity of those involved.